Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This was the week when any semblance of political consensus on tackling coronavirus broke down. It was Labour versus Conservative, the North versus a Tory government led by a very Southern Prime Minister. It was all getting a bit tasty at Prime Minister's questions. I know that for someone who's been an opportunist all his life, this is difficult, this is difficult to understand. But having read and considered the sage advice, I have genuinely concluded that a circuit break is in the national interest. The whole point, Mr Speaker, is to seize this moment now to avoid the misery of another national lockdown into which he wants to go uh, headlong by delivering a regional solution. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider's guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, George Parker. Sorry, Seb fans, he's away at the moment, so you're stuck with me. This week, we'll be looking at how Boris Johnson's coronavirus strategy has, yet again, been tested to breaking point, as Labour opposition leader Keir Starmer, who you heard in the intro sparring with the PM and leaders of northern cities, tore into Mr Johnson's tears, his new three-tier alert system for COVID. Joining me will be Andy Bounds, our man in the north, and Jim Pickard, the lobby's leading Labour expert. And later, we'll be talking about our favourite subject, Brexit, the end game is almost here. Honest. And in Brussels, the gloves were coming off. The FT's Peter Foster and the Institute for Government's Brexit Supremo, Georgina Wright, will be joining us later. So, Andy, my old mucker from our days in Brussels, and Jim, my current mucker at Westminster, welcome along. You'll have both seen the inappropriate government ad this week about Fatima the ballerina and how she was about to switch career to work in the seemingly vague area of cyber. She doesn't know it yet. The ad used as part of a campaign to encourage people to retrain cybersecurity was withdrawn, of course, but it spawned a series of social media spin-offs. So, Jim and Andy, I'd just like to ask you, first of all, what would be your surprise career move? Andy? I'm considering becoming a consultant for coronavirus measures for London businesses. I mean, it's been entertaining to some extent to wake up and read everybody saying, hang on a minute, I can go round to meet my mother in the pub, but I can't meet her at home. What's all this about? We've been living with this for obviously uh, a couple of months. So um, I think one of my colleagues coined the term London splaining to to explain to people what, what's actually going on. You know? <laughs> London splaining, excellent. Jim, what would be your surprise career move? Well, it's not going to be ballet. I don't really have the uh, the skills for that one. And I, I can't be an astronaut because I get travel sick. So I think it's got to be a test and trace management consultant because you get seven grand a day and your results don't, clearly don't have to be that amazing to get the wonga. Indeed, we learned a little bit more about the uh, amount of money the government's spending on not making its test and trace system work this week. Okay, well, let's talk about the the Northern Rebellion, Andy, and start with you. How's it shaping up? And just talk us through the events of the week. Yeah, well, we had a very tiring weekend. It felt a little bit like the Brexit process, to be honest. There were tense talks going on, and we were desperately talking to uh, people in Westminster, but also people in Andy Burnham's office and so on about all these rumours. Was he going to cave in? Was Tier 3 going to be imposed? 
Um, we then had Liverpool getting tier three imposed, you know, wouldn't Manchester be next? Basically, what's happened is the government would like mayors and regional leaders to endorse this strategy because they fear there won't be buy-in locally if they don't. They want the message to be coming out of the town halls. This is needed, not from a Tory government, which is losing support to some extent in the north. Sharing the blame around a bit as well. Well, that's it. I mean, I think there was a nice quote in uh, one of our rival publications talking about, you know, we want them to own this. Officials involved in the talk said, you know, they want to get our hands in the uh, proverbial and get down and dirty and take some of the blame, as you say. And we're recording this on Friday, so things could move on. But certainly at the time, Manchester was saying no and many other parts of the north. But Liverpool did ultimately say yes, where there was a bit of a sense that the government basically forced them against their will into tier three. This is um, Steve Rotherham, the mayor of the Liverpool city region, speaking to Channel 4 News. Quite clearly, we've said, look, we understand that further restrictions were probably necessary given the pressures on the NHS. You've just heard in the report and the exponential increases in transmission rates. But I have to be absolutely clear, it was the government that decided that we, we needed local restrictions in our area and to place the Liverpool city region into tier three. It wasn't local leaders, it was the government and it's disingenuous for them to indicate otherwise. So Steve Rotherham, you heard there, it was, it's become the sort of poster boy of the government's coronavirus strategy. You know, the Liverpool Labour leader who supported the government in its moves to impose these new tier three restrictions. But it's been a bit of a scarring episode, hasn't it, for Steve Rotherham up in Liverpool? Yes, I think the way he's been treated, where Boris Johnson repeatedly refers to him as Steve and Steve Rotherham, and he's agreed to all this, has made a lot of other mayors think twice, because they don't want to be associated with a Tory government and a Tory policy. And he's had to fend off accusations of selling the region down the river, and everyone's been pointing to Andy Burnham and saying, also Liverpool-born, of course, he's now become adopted as the sort of Scouser's hero for standing up to Whitehall when Steve Rotherham couldn't. But the key thing to remember here is that Liverpool had to do something. I mean, their case rate is hitting towards 700. Their hospitals are nearly full at one stage with 95% capacity uh, taken up in uh, ICU. So I think the leaders there felt they really had to do something about this. And if this was the only thing on the table, they couldn't afford to wait. Whereas I think Greater Manchester's calculated that they can afford to wait a bit longer. Okay, so the Northern Rebellion led by Andy Burnham shows that the consensus is breaking down across the country. But of course, Jim Picard, it also has broken down at Westminster, where we saw quite a dramatic change of position this week from Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, who basically has been endorsing the government's position all the way down the track while attacking the government for the way it's implemented it. But this week, he changed course on policy as well and backed the idea of a national so-called circuit breaker. Can you explain what that is and why he did it? So yes, Keir Starmer made this press conference announcement at the Garden Museum by Lambeth Bridge on Tuesday at five o'clock. And it was a major political moment. It was a total divergence from what the government is doing and is planning to do. And the way he sees this two-week or three-week circuit breaker, working would be pretty much national lockdown, no travel or work that's not essential, pubs, restaurants, leisure facilities closed across the entire country. And presumably with the kind of furlough scheme that we saw first time around, more or less, although they haven't been explicit about how much this would cost, interestingly. Now, the politics of this are fascinating. People in Westminster like to say in a sort of self-satisfied way that Keir Starmer was a good lawyer, but he kind of lacks political nous. I think since he became leader in April, he has demonstrated quite a considerable political flair in some ways of 
avoiding certain traps and going quiet in areas where it doesn't help him and being more noisy in areas where it does. And he seems to have calculated that this is a sort of one-way bet in the sense that if the government falls into line and does what he says and does this circuit breaker, then he looks like he's setting the agenda. If the government doesn't do it, and the infection rate keeps going up, which looks pretty certain, and the death rate keeps going up, then the Labour Party can point fingers at the Conservatives and say that it's their fault. So it does seem very cunning in one way. I think the reason why it is still a gamble, however, is that if we find ourselves in just a perpetual series of lockdowns again and again, and we get to next summer and there's no vaccine, and the economy is literally a smoking ruin, then Keir Starmer could have questions to answer about whether he pushed people into this never-ending cycle that didn't necessarily end things. I mean, there was an interesting dynamic in the House Commons chamber this week, wasn't there, where Boris Johnson, who was being attacked by his own MPs for going too far with these restrictions, was suddenly able to present himself as a voice of moderation, the person who was standing out against Keir Starmer's plan for a disastrous, as he put it, national lockdown. That is definitely true. There was a kind of galvanising effect in the in the short term among the Tories. I mean, what you see at a local level in Manchester is fascinating. You have this very unlikely Game of Thrones style the North resisting the South. And it has unified not only the Labour leaders and Labour MPs in Greater Manchester, but you also have various Tory MPs like William Wragg and Graham Brady joining forces with them, but for obviously very different reasons, which is that a lot of them don't want any kind of lockdown at all and are saying, well, look, there shouldn't be a lockdown. Therefore, if there is a lockdown, you should be paying 80% of wages. But they're not philosophically aligned with Andy Burnham and people like that. And the question, I suppose which Andy Bounds would probably know better than me, is how long that sort of slightly unholy alliance can continue. It's fascinating because, you know, they are arguing against it for different reasons, although there is an economic reason in the Greater Manchester argument as well. I mean, Burnham and particularly Sir Richard Lees, who's the leader of Manchester City Council, who for 30 years has built this city into this sort of shining tower and you can see all the cranes on the skyline. And he sees the danger of that being taken back decades by a, a lockdown that would hit Manchester in the north, but not necessarily the full lockdown in the South. And so there's a lot riding on this. And I think the economics are a big driver and business is very much behind Andy Burnham as well. But they also argue that this lockdown won't actually work. This tier three, they point to evidence in Sage Minute saying that this really isn't sufficient. So you either have a proper lockdown or you sort of try and get away without one at all. That's their argument. But we will see as the numbers and the big danger for Andy Burnham is, as I say, the hospitals start filling in Greater Manchester. And people look at him and say, well, that's your fault. You refuse to do anything. And we should say that in Northern Ireland, the idea that Keir Starmer has been pushing of some kind of circuit breaker, so-called, is already in place. And I just wondered, you know, we obviously talk a lot about Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and the devolution settlement. Does this episode tell us that this is actually a coming of age moment for devolution in England? I think it certainly is. However this plays out, the government has recognised you need buy-in from local leaders to make dramatic changes. And of course, that buy-in had to come in August as well, when the first lockdown. The mayors have very little power, really, but what they do have is a very big voice. And Andy Burnham's a national figure. He's got friends in the media. He's been a cabinet minister. He knows how to play the game. And sort of standing on the steps in St. Peter's Square, the site of the Peterloo Massacre, with his cohorts around him, you know, looking a bit like a Manchester indie band. You know, actually people plodding in the street when he was making his rallying cry for the North. Yeah. And you can't see that being turned backwards. Jim, do you think Keir Starmer is actually going to win this argument and force Boris Johnson, or do you think facts on the ground will force Boris Johnson to have some sort of national circuit breaker lockdown? So I think the other element of pressure here, as you noted a second ago, George, is, is that Northern Ireland has got its own lockdown. 
I wrote a couple of nights ago that Wales is going to head in the same direction at the end of next week, almost certainly. If Scotland then goes as well, there's a potential domino effect. What I suspect Boris Johnson is not going to do is embrace the Keir Starmer terminology of a circuit breaker. I imagine some very pointed-headed, clever people in Down Street right now are thinking about the language they might use. And whether it would cover literally everywhere, including the pastures of Cornwall, uh, and sort of rural areas with very low infection rates. I'm not sure that will happen. But you know, when you think about it, there's already half the population, or more than half the population in tier two and in tier three in England. So you could end up with something that stops short of being national, but is most of the nation and has a different name. But Keir Starmer will have effectively won the argument, I suppose. And the event's moving fast. Do you think in the end, the North will buckle under and basically facing the facts, as you mentioned in the case of Liverpool, that the um, infection rates are going up still very quickly, that they will in the end agree to Boris Johnson's demands for them to move into this tier three. I'm not going to hold out any hostages to fortune. I suspect the next move might be regional. Boris could say to Andy Burnham, well, you wanted a proper lockdown, you can have one, but only for your region. And then he's got the dilemma of whether he says yes or no to that, as Jim said, because you can't see a Tory government looking down bits of the country with lots of their voters and not particularly high cases. So I think this one might run for a few more days yet, but who knows, by the time this goes out, <laughs> we could have a solution. <laughs> But Jim, what's the end of another difficult week for Boris Johnson on coronavirus, as almost every week it seems to be at the moment? How do you assess his own position and his own strategy? Boris Johnson's position is looking weaker than it ever has done since he became Prime Minister. That is without a doubt that when you talk to Tory MPs, they are very, very mutinous. There's not much loyalty among the new red wall seat MPs. They seem very much keener on trying to maintain those seats rather than bolster the PM. I think the one thing that still holds him in good stead, though, is that this is the guy who still has the charisma that the rest of the Tory party generally don't have. You remember when he made those visits to Teesside back in December and how he was greeted by construction workers or factory workers up north. He does have a certain magic Of course, his handling of the pandemic has rendered that not as powerful as it used to be. But when the mutinous Tories look amongst each other and they think, what if we got rid of him and replaced him with someone else like Jeremy Hunt? You could improve the managerial aspects of number 10, but would you still be winning elections with 80 seat majorities? Not necessarily. So the Prime Minister's had the toughest year you could imagine. But it reminds me of the days of Blair where the newspapers would always write headlines about it's his toughest week ever. And yet Blair would just keep going through the waves as choppy as it got. He would just keep on going. And I think as long as Boris Johnson wants to stay there, he's pretty safe for quite a long time. Jim and Andy, thanks very much. It was a week dominated by two subjects, coronavirus and Brexit. And how often have we said that? In Brussels, the 27 EU leaders convened for a European Council, which they took stock of the talks. Not much drama there, apparently. Angela Merkel called for a spirit of compromise. Emmanuel Macron dug in over fish. And the summit communique urged Michel Barnier, EU's chief negotiator, to keep on talking, but to hold his ground. We are absolutely determined to reach a fair deal with the UK. We will do everything we can but not at any price, if you want access to our market of 450 million people, there must be a level playing field. That must be free and fair competition. But time is short. The transition period ends on January the 1st, and in Downing Street there was deep frustration, even anger, 
that Brussels appeared to be running down the clock with the aim of increasing pressure on Boris Johnson to make concessions. His response took us into no-deal territory. For whatever reason, it's clear from the summit that after 45 years of membership, they are not willing, unless there's some fundamental change of approach, to offer this country the same terms as Canada. And so with high hearts and with complete confidence, we will prepare to embrace the alternative and we will prosper mightily as an independent free trading nation controlling our own borders, our fisheries and setting our own laws. On Friday, Downing Street told Mr Barnier not to bother coming to London on Monday unless he fundamentally changed the EU's negotiating position. So where are we as we pass another supposed deadline for a deal? Peter Foster, our public policy editor, and Georgina Wright, the senior researcher on Brexit at the Institute for Government. Welcome. Peter, can we start with you? Sum up the week. Well, you know, it was sort of almost as billed, which was that we aren't going to get a deal, but we should get enough progress to carry on talking. The trouble is that at the European Council, the conclusions amounted to what one British official described to me as a cup of cold sick. Look, if you want to deal, Mr. Johnson, come and get it, but we're not moving. And of course, that's exactly what Mr. Johnson has said back to the Europeans. And I think the danger is that both sides overestimate the extent to which the other is willing to compromise. And if we don't get movement in the next week or two, we end up in a, an ugly stalemate. And Georgina, are we facing a real breakdown, do you think? I mean, I, I agree with Peter. I don't think this week was the surprise at all. In a sense, the council wasn't really about Brexit. Sure, this was the first time that EU leaders were actually discussing Brexit in a very, very long time. But they were also discussing lots of other issues. So in a sense, it was unlikely that we would have a breakthrough this week. I think as we edge closer to the end year, there is now a real, we arrive at the crunch point where both sides are looking at each other and thinking, okay, well, we're going to have to move, but who moves first? And I think we're going to see lots of tit for tat, lots of linkages between policy areas, the EU saying, well, if we'll give you this, then you're going to have to give us on that. And it's just going to be like this for the next couple of weeks. But I think we're going to have to see some movement by the end of the week. Otherwise, we really are running out of time. And Peter, you've covered a lot of these negotiations in the EU, and so did I in my time in Brussels. These kinds of negotiations always need a bit of a crisis, don't they? And now we've got one. The proof is going to be in the next week or two, I think, whether this is a sort of moment where everyone comes to their senses a little bit and, you know, Macron and Merkel and von der Leyen get in the room and the EU really does realise that actually they're not negotiating with Theresa May. I mean, I think the danger is that when you talk to people on the EU side, George, they really don't believe that Boris has got anywhere to go other than to do a deal. And therefore, in the best traditions of an EU negotiation, they are just going to run down the clock. They're going to keep squeezing him. And they may be overestimating, or they may not, the extent to which Boris is prepared to move. And Georgina, do you think they'd really let the deal, which is, you know, basically done and dusted in many areas, would they really let a deal like this collapse in an argument over fishing quotas? No, I think that's unlikely. If you look at the EU's position, it is very maximalist. And I think that shows that it was always intended to be climbed down from. But of course, it's a highly emotional topic. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, the politics and the technicalities of like quotas and access to water. We're talking about something that is really emotional and vital for some fishing communities on both sides. So of course, this was, you know, something that was always going to be very difficult because both sides stand to lose. And so it really will be, for the EU's perspective, 
it will depend really on how the UK moves on other issues such as this institutional structure to manage any divergence going forward or other bits and bobs. And I think that will really determine how quickly the EU move on fisheries. But I suspect they're going to try and hold out as long as they can. And Peter, do you think we need what people in EU circles call a Varadka moment, recalling uh, Boris Johnson's meeting with Leo Varadka, the Taoiseach at the time near Liverpool, which seemed to unlock a deal last time around in 2019? Does it need a moment like that, maybe this time with Emmanuel Macron? You know, I think sometimes that is slightly overstated, George, honestly, because that was a particular circumstance where one bit of the divorce deal, the Northern Ireland settlement, which Boris Johnson is now trying to rewrite, but one bit of the deal that was really was in the gift of of the Taoiseach in lots of ways, uh, was unfixed and they fixed it. I think this is actually much broader and deeper and the EU27 will not actually want to be picked off on the fundamental issue here, which is the level playing field. If they're going to give us zero tariff, zero quota access to their market, they're not going to do it without the commensurate guarantees on the level playing field. And, you know, Boris Johnson says, I just want Canada. They won't give us Canada. But Canada has tariffs and quotas. The Canada deal took years to negotiate precisely because it contained a line-by-line tariff negotiation. This is not that. You know, Johnson decided he didn't want to extend the transition and he's backed himself into a corner where if he wants zero tariff, zero quota, and he should want it, not least to solve the Northern Ireland problem, he's going to have to do more on the level playing field. And I don't see the EU moving on that. I don't think it's something that Merkel or Macron can reach in and fix. It's really quite a fundamental thing. And then, as Georgina says, the fishing thing falls into place in a way. I don't want to diminish the political sensitivities around fish, but it's 0.1% of our economy and it's not the deal breaker. It's going to be the cherry on the cake, but we've got to bake the cake first. Boris Johnson seems to have realised that the EU thinks it's got the upper hand here. And, you know, we all remember the uh, claims by the Brexiteers that we would hold all the cards in this negotiation. Georgina, I just wondered what your assessment was. How badly do you think Boris Johnson needs a deal? And do you think the EU recognises that problem? Both sides recognise that a deal is in their interest. But the problem is both sides have said, yeah, but not at any price. And I think it's clear that from the Prime Minister's perspective, we've just seen loads of reports and surveys over the past couple of weeks that British business just aren't ready for a no-deal Brexit. So there are lots of questions around, okay, well, if, if there is an acrimonious fallout, how does that border operate? What's the disruption going to be like? Is the EU going to be requiring lots of paperwork from one day to the next? You know, how are British businesses going to respond to that? And then how are EU businesses going to respond? Because, of course, we don't really hear how EU business readiness is going. But, you know, I think it was the German, the Italian and the French CBI got together and wrote a letter saying, if we are going for a no deal, then we really need to start preparing because time is short. So there is clearly alarm on both sides. To come back quickly on something Peter was saying, I think, will there be a Varadka moment? This is very different to Article 50. I think for starters, the optics are quite different. I think the EU leaders are quite relaxed if the Prime Minister claimed whatever deal comes out of this negotiation as a UK victory. I think they're quite relaxed about that. And two, it's a very technical negotiation. And that's not to say that the withdrawal agreement wasn't technical. It it was, of course, but EU leaders aren't going to sit around the table with the Prime Minister and start talking about rules of origin and, you know, what fishing quotas should be like. All of that happens between the Commission and UK negotiators and then the Commission talking to member state diplomats in Brussels in a working group. So in a sense, I just can't really see that Varadka moment having quite the same impact that it did during the Article 50 period. And Peter, Boris Johnson said that Michel Barnier might as well not bother coming to London unless he's got a 
new compromise to put on the table. Where do you think the EU can compromise in the next few weeks? It's a very good question, George. You know, I, I think they will obviously come in on fish. Macron signaled that today, and they always were going to. They've always been clear, going in fact right back to the Theresa May era, that the FTA, the free trade agreement, would be predicated on fish. So the EU will move on fish, not as much as the Brits would like, but they will move, and Mr Johnson will come home and say, I've got more fish. The really difficult stuff is on the level playing field. The EU, you remember, initially came out and said dynamic alignment on state aid and following with ECJ oversight. They have moved back on that quite a lot. And there does seem to be some basic agreement on the principles on state aid. There doesn't seem to be real full agreement on what sort of regulator the UK will have. But if you're going to have a fairly light touch regulator in the UK, which is the signals coming out of the Treasury in number 10, then you're going to need a pretty robust governance mechanism. And that is where I think it's really stuck and where the EU probably won't move. You know, one more thing I'd add is that the stakes are very high now because Johnson has said he's going to rewrite the Northern Ireland Protocol unilaterally if he doesn't get a deal. And that means it's hard to see a no deal ending amicably, that both sides agree to disagree and then lapse into a tariff line-by-line negotiation next year. I think a lot of people in Whitehall fear that a no deal will be messy Mm. because of where the government's taken itself as regards the Northern Ireland Protocol. Okay, $100 million question to both of you. Is there going to be a deal, Georgina? I mean, I've always said that there would be a deal, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will be a very good one. But, you know, it's not just about reaching an agreement. It's also about allowing time to vote on that agreement, particularly on the EU side, and ensuring that businesses are ready for whatever happens on the 1st of January. So in a sense, it is really complicated. And there are a lot of banana skins there that could be easily tripped over. So a lot can happen between now and then, but I'm still on the campus. As long as both sides say that they want a deal and that they're talking, that is the most important thing. Peter? Yes, I think there will be a deal. I don't think it's anything like as much of a fait accompli as people think it is. Uh, And there is a really significant risk that actually both sides simply can't manage the choreography and this whole thing just gets stuck. And that would be a huge mistake because actually the deal's perfectly doable. It's been visible, frankly, for months. And it would be a huge mistake on both sides. It would be a massive neighbourhood failure not to do it. Georgina and Peter, thanks for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh de la Mer. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 